Typhoon Haiyan, Superstorm Sandy, Fukushima, tsunamis, Newtown, all familiar names in the landscape of world disasters. And the world does respond with emergency funds, teams to rebuild. But who tends to the inner landscape of survivors, the mental health of survivors, especially the children, to prevent those experiences from lodging deep within and creating post-traumatic stress disorder? Second Response, an initiative of the Fortunate Blessings Foundation, is one of those organizations. Second Response teams go into a community after the initial relief efforts have stabilized an area and work with children to help them release fear, anger, and confusion they may have experienced during trauma and to prevent the post-traumatic stress from becoming stuck in the body and resulting in post-traumatic stress disorder. How is it done? It's done through play shops, not workshops, but play shops and trainings for mental health professionals in these play shops to build on-the-ground capacity. Two weeks ago, I participated in a play shop training in Connecticut and was part of a team of consultants working on its ongoing evolution. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Michelle Wang, clinical director of the Second Response Trauma Team, research coordinator for research on trauma and combat exposure impact on female veterans' eating behaviors at San Francisco's Veterans Administration Medical Center. She is also one-third of the second response team who just returned from the Philippines, where she worked with children and trained psychologists in play shops. Dr. Michelle Wang, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you so much, Ellen. I appreciate it. So you've just gotten back where... Typhoon Haiyan hit really hard on November 8th of last year, and the storm just wiped out towns and cities, homes, and many, many lives. And I just wondered if you could share just initially what you saw when you got to the Philippines. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so so Typhoon Haiyan is, um, the Philippi- in, in the Philippines, they call it uh, Yolanda. And um, when we were on the plane flying in from Manila to Tacloban. Um, actually, you know, when we went to Manila, um, Manila was relatively um, untouched by the, by the typhoon, essentially. And um, so when we flew from Manila to Tacloban, Tacloban was one of the most devastated cities in the Philippines. And you could see the devastation even, even while you were on the plane, just looking down into, into just miles and miles and stretches of water with with no land in sight and maybe a single boat in the middle of the water and then getting to the airport and seeing just you know the airport was was obviously another one of the most uh, devastated locations within Tacloban city as well because it was right on the coast um and just the minute i saw that uh it was it, it immediately became so apparent why we were there and, and why we needed to stay there for the longest period of time. So we initially had plans to go from Tacloban to Ormoc to Cebu back to Manila. And um, our, our stay in Tacloban was only scheduled for a couple days. We ended up stretching our stay for, for the longest for, for that reason. It was, you know, it really, it really touched me. It was the first time that I've been in a disaster zone. And... Um, but I can I can I can safely speak for Jonah, who was my other teammate. That you know he's been in disaster zones for you know for much longer than I have, and 
you know, it, it, it touches, it, it touches you in, in a way that, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult to explain. Mm-hmm. The devastation is immense on many levels. So, so and just to clarify for people, the Philippines is this archipelago of islands and Tacloban is on the eastern seacoast of this small island. And uh, so that's why it was so hard, hard hit, correct? Yes, that's correct. So Tacloban is on the eastern edge of this island called Leyte. Um, and it's it, Tacloban is actually Leyte's capital city. Um, and so it it's um, historically and, and even currently, it's probably the most important seaport on the eastern coast. Um, huge agricultural region, uh, huge production, major import and export of rice, corn, bananas, sugarcane, coconut. Um, so as you can imagine, with, with, a typh- with Typhoon Yolanda hitting Tacloban so, so intensely and so destructively that most of the, most of the agricultural um, crops have been damaged as well. So and that's, you know, that's clearly most of the people's livelihood on the island. You went there to Tacloban to work with the children and the caregivers and the mental health workers, the teachers. How were you received? What did you feel from the people there when you got there? Oh, we were we were received just with with open arms and and open hearts. Uh, there's there's no other way of describing it. Um, they were completely receptive to what we were, what what new skills and psychosocial skills and techniques we were bringing in to the mix. And up until when we came in. The primary psychosocial intervention that was available, that was taught, that was most widely taught, uh, was psychological first aid, and that's primarily psychosocial support um, sort of intervention. With not, it's 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 not a lot of body movement. It's not a lot of uh, releasing of energy, which is kind of, you know, what we came to learn, what the people really really wanted. Um, and so we, we taught a few play shops. We ran a few of our, our play shops, which, um, which are essentially workshops, but they have the play shop component, um, which is the body movement and the, uh, the somatic piece built into it. So I wanted to just clarify, because you and I know what play shops are intimately, and play shops is a very unusual term. You know, most people know the word workshops. So let's give our listeners a little bit of outline of what is a play shop. Sure. Um, yeah, so play shops are um, carefully crafted series of exercises. Um, and there's about anywhere between half a dozen or more. Um, it really depends because every time we run a play shop, there are there are essentially different different components that we bring into in, into the um, experience based on who's facilitating and the audience. Um, and essentially what it is is um, a series of activities that helps people release uh, tension and grief and and anger and fear and whatever, and even joy and whatever it is that they're feeling in their bodies that, that need to get out. And when we do this with uh, populations that have just experienced trauma, but we've also done this, as, as you know yourself, Ellen, in Connecticut, 
uh, with populations um, who are simply willing to to learn this and to absorb this so that they can teach other people. And, and the exercise is what it looks like to an outsider is essentially lots and lots of screaming and yelling and running around. And, and some might even say, you know, just a bunch of people acting completely, completely nuts. And so from the outside, I, I know that it may seem completely unstructured in that sense, but we've crafted every single exercise so that it has um, very, very sound scientific underpinning. Um, and we, we draw from theories from traditional Chinese medicine. And we draw from theories of uh, psychoanalysis and, and concepts of child attachment. You know, we draw from modern theories of uh, neurophysiology and neurobiology and neuropsychology. And trauma and trauma work uh, pe that people have done that's body-centered over uh, many, many years as well. Absolutely, yes. Bioenergetics, yes. And, and just another thing I, I want to kind of add in, if, if I think, too, if people were coming into this or kids coming into a play shop, it's like a great big theater <laughs> game that yes. you play. And, you know, just having been in the theater for years, so it, it, it's this kind of like... It's like this big play, it, really, in the play, like it's the first act and the second act and the third act. Yeah. So go ahead. That's just no, my perspective. No, you're absolutely correct. And, uh, and also, I, I, you know, one of the things that we've noticed, and even before going to Tacloban, but particularly in Tacloban, is it really is a space that's safe, but more importantly, allows people to just be, to be whatever they need to be, to be whoever they need to be. And um, it, it really gives people permission, these play shops, to let go and to, to release. And, and this is often this permission aspect, the, the how much they're allowing themselves to, to release the things that they never allowed themselves or society doesn't allow themselves to release. This piece is so critical when it comes to uh, post-disaster, post-trauma. So we're working with kids. And, and kids don't have that kind of rational uh, storytelling thing that us grown-ups have, which gets in our way, mm -hmm. we know. So that kind of play really gets kids to take these things, these traumas that they've experienced that they can't really explain, and it's not that helpful to explain anyway, and just to let things that basically don't have words come forward Right. So so can you give us a, just a, maybe a, a small story that doesn't violate anything of, of just something that happened in, in one of these play shops at Tuckleban that really moved you or impressed sure, you? Sure. Absolutely. We um, and, and by we, I, I mean my two teammates and then myself included. Um, so we uh, Dr. Ronnie Berger, who's a traumatologist from Israel. Uh, Jonah Spear and myself, and uh, Jonah has a has an extensive background in theater, and and of course in the I'm the psychologist on the team as well, and so the three of us we uh, we ended up partnering. We just found a group called Kusog Takloban, and uh, Kusog means strength in the native dialect of Warai, and um, we we actually just very randomly and coincidentally and fatefully found this group and um 
this group had, is a local grassroots organization and consisting of mostly women and all volunteers. And we just randomly bumped into them during um, one of our play shop lectures. And um, we, we saw them, um, they had adopted a whole village and the village is called Kandahog Village. And they adopted this village that was hugely devastated and just began working with the children there. And so they really were in um, in need of psychologists and, and other psychosocial workers to bring in uh, resources. So we, we decided we were going to go into this village and just spend most of our days working with the children there. And how many people live in that village? Oh, I would say a few hundred people. A few hundred people. Okay. It's it's very difficult to say because um, most of the men of this village have 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 died in in the typhoon, and so currently, as the way it is, it's mostly single mothers at this point raising multiple raising many children and or the children raising their siblings, and so it's very hard to say the the count. Um. So so we worked with this village for several days and. You know, in the in the beginning, we just we ran play shops, and we just went in there, and the children just dove right in, and they they were hungry for this. I mean, they just wanted to scream, and they wanted to to laugh, and they wanted to to just you know, a lot of the teenagers in this village had already gotten more into the cognitive cerebral place in their heads, and and definitely the adults had as well. And so when we did the play shops, what we noticed was the teenagers and the adults would stand on the outside of the circles, kind of watching, chaperoning, looking in. But a lot of them looked very worried. A lot of them looked like they had a lot of grief still in their bodies. Um, but the children just, it, it was it was beautiful. I mean, to say the very least, it was very beautiful. And it was the, it were, those were the moments where I felt the most joy actually myself was watching the children just completely let loose and play. And really that's what they needed. And did the adults or any of the teens uh, join in or did you work with them at all or what happened with them? Yeah. You know, the adults for the most part, um, did not join in. They, they stood on the sides. Um, a lot of them, however, had, um, had other duties they had to attend to such as they, you know, they had to build, um, construct their, their, their living quarters or, uh, get pump water from, from the well or, or, you know, any number of things that were essential to, you know, when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they had to have shelter and water and food. So, um, understandably so the adults had other things to tend to. And the teenagers were also, um, they also became a part of that hierarchy, um, uh, you know, helping the adults do that. But, but I think the kids really were just, um, they couldn't really help with a lot of those things, phys the physically demanding things. Um, and so the adults and the teenagers just sort of let them, you know, do whatever they wanted to do. And they gravitated towards play, which kids often do. And even when they, when we don't allow them to play, I think a lot of kids, of course, in a non-traumatized setting, gravitate towards play all by themselves. In a traumatized setting, I think it's a lot harder to, um, you know, for kids to naturally go into that state of laughing and screaming because particularly in certain cultures, it may seem disrespectful, you know, after trauma has happened to immediately go into that space. 
so it was really important that we, we went in there. We allowed them to to do that. And um, so they played. They played for three, four days, and we did all kinds of games with them. And we tried to restore rhythm with them with the clapping and the stomping. And we did the, the yes-no game, if, if you remember, Ellen, from, from the play shop that we did in Connecticut. I do, but none of our listeners know what that yes-no game is. <laughs> it's actually one of the most powerful games that we discovered in the Philippines that people were, uh, they just grabbed onto the, 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 the strongest. And, and I'll give a little explanation of what it is. It's, we, we basically split the group into two lines facing each other. So there's, there's two lines, long lines of people, and they're all facing each other. And just from, you know, uh, gesturing with, with their bodies and pointing or just using using their eye contact, they identify a partner from across the room, from across the line. And so in that way, they're all paired up. And what we say to one side of the group is that everyone in that side is yes, and everyone on the other side is no. And we have them say this. So we say yes, and everyone repeats after us, yes. It's very emphatic. And the other side of the the line says no. Now, what we ask them to do is to start very slowly and to gradually rise up to just this roar of yeses and nos. And so they start off with just nodding their heads or shaking their heads without any verbal exchange. And then maybe they add some nonverbal, such as crossing their arms or stomping their feet. But as they grow, uh, more, as they grow with intensity the volume increases, the body movements increase, until at the end of the of this exercise, people are literally just, their hands are in the air, the, 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 the roar in the room is deafening, people are just on their knees, they, I mean, it just, it's so powerful. It's totally powerful. I mean, just from doing it in Connecticut in the play shop there, you know, to be able to say, yes to someone who's saying no and go for it 100% or to say no to somebody who's saying yes 100% is completely fantastic and in a way kind of liberating to be so allow yourself to be so powerful that you could be screaming yes 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 and no 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 so much and to have a whole room of people doing it you know this was in a play shop in Connecticut so to do it in a place where, oh my gosh, to, to say no, don't, you know, just all the, everything behind the no to come forward or everything behind the yes to come forward must have been incredible. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And, and, and one of the things that we discovered with this, uh, with this particular exercise, not only within a university population, um, of, what I mean by that is university students, but also with children, and all of them are survivors of Yolanda, is that the, they they really, really loved to be able to say no more than they love to say yes. And, you know, and this is so interesting because, you know, and one university student put it very, very nicely, and I'm going to summarize what he said, is we, he said that we, and he means Filipino people, are such compliant people in so many ways. You know, and he says we love to say yes. We love to help. We love to uh, be agreeable, um, and we love to maintain harmony within the group. So being able to say no for the first time in a contained, safe, structured setting 
was so liberating for him. And, and I saw that um, actually with a lot of the children as well, to be able to stomp their feet and, you know, make a fist, you know, of course, without any physical contact, but just throw their fists in the air and just say, no, a lot of them just, uh, they, they regained a sense of agency that was taken away from them during mm -hmm. Typhoon Yolanda during so many things that happened, Yolanda, such as human trafficking, you know, uh, just so, so many things as a repercussion to, to a natural and man-made disaster that we see all around the world. You know, all of these things create a sense of helplessness. And so the no really brought back the agency, and that was so powerful to see. I, I can feel it as you, as you talk about it. And to also do this, just to let our listeners know that people who do training to do play shops actually do the play shops themselves because to teach it, you need to be able to embody it in a certain way and make it yours uh, because we, it's not a thing that we teach from our heads. It's a thing that we teach from who we are and how we are. So you also did these play shops with psychologists and adults and caregivers, etc. And that too must have been extraordinarily liberating for them as well because to be in the to be either in the typhoon or after the typhoon and dealing and having to hold so much trauma is exhausting yes and you know that's a that's a wonderful point ellen and that's one of the one of the teaching points that we were asked to speak on when we were in the Philippines, whether it's a Manila training university and university students and psychologists there or Tacloban um, or Cebu, is everyone wanted us to talk about vicarious traumatization. And, and you know, a vicarious traumatization is exactly what you're, what you're referring to, which is, you know, caregivers in this field, you know, they don't have to be psychologists. They could be um, teachers. They could be social workers. They could be anyone who's, who has this desire to help tend to have a lot, a lot of empathy for other people and empathy for human suffering. And, and this empathy is precisely what makes them effective in doing what they do. And it also, by the same token, um, makes it likely for them to experience vicarious trauma, you know, by, because they absorb so much of other people's pain. They hold so much. They can, they're, they're containers for, um, for grief and suffering. So particularly, I would say, for caregivers and caretakers and helpers in the field, it's particularly important for them to engage in these play shops as well. And I can say from my own experience doing these play shops um, is that it's helped me tremendously in being able to continue doing the work that we did in Tacloban. We go way back to that old saying, which is physician heal thyself. And we could just take the physician out of there, but anyone who offers healing to others is always to go back and to do the work ourselves. Yes. To, uh, so we can continue. So for the future, uh, either in the Philippines or in this country, wherever trauma can hit, what is the function? What, where, do, where do we see second response going next? What is the need that can be fulfilled? That's a big question, I know, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm more thinking about how we train people who can be on the ground, you know, people who are of that culture, people who are of that place can help others. Sure, sure. 
Yeah, you know, currently the way second response works is uh, we we respond after the emergency phase of a disaster. And particularly, um, you know, as the WHO, as the World Health Organization would describe it, you know, there's there's an immediate phase after disaster happens. And then between four to six months post-disaster is sort of what people are referring to as the disillusionment phase. And the disillusionment phase is typically when um, survivors of a, of a disaster notice that there's um, so many organizations and so many people from different countries coming in, so many, so much money coming in, but they're not seeing anything, or or they're not, um, or they're not seeing the help that they need, or 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 perhaps just just the sheer devastation is so overwhelming that they don't even know where to begin, and they don't even know where to begin to rebuild their lives. So we have come into Takloban in the middle of this disillusionment phase, actually quite, I would say, actually towards the beginning. And um, we started to see this disillusionment hit people. And there's a lot of grief and a lot of anger. And we hope that um, in future disasters that we will go into a country, a town, a city, a devastated area, um, probably about a month to two months to four months, and I say that the range is so um, so broad because it's so unpredictable. You know, for example, we went into Takloban. We wanted to go in actually earlier than we did, but the day that we were supposed to fly in, there was a lot a lot more floods and landslides that were happening. So the the city sort of regressed, if you will, in terms of just basic safety needs. So so we really there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of back and forth and sliding back and moving forward and sliding back. So it's very difficult to tell. But I would say between the one month to four month mark is where we aim to go into a disaster zone. And really what Second Response does, these play shops are an intervention as opposed to treatments. Um, and, and we say that because we would really, our goal is really to prevent um, the the incidents and as as well as the um, the intensity of post of the symptoms associated with post traumatic stress before it becomes a disorder before it becomes PTSD and so the way that our team is currently is that we're going into we're teaming in with local universities Department of Education Department of Health Ministry of Health um, and other local grassroots roots organizations just like Kusok, Takloban, to train the trainers there and to train the helpers there. And so so what we say and what we've noticed is after we've trained these these helpers, we've gotten just this this surge of emails coming in saying, now they have been invited to such and such university or now they have been invited to such and such um, organization to that to then train other trainers and we're, we're, at, we're getting a lot of emails from people saying can, do we have permission to do this can we can we go ahead and use the guidebook that you've written up and go ahead and do this and because currently we don't have um, a formal certification program in place um, we're saying absolutely do this but first email us give us all the information that you have what is the demographic of the people you're training you know what 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 how large is the audience where are you doing this you know what activities do you feel like would, would you know do you feel would be appropriate and then email us 
Yeah. So you're really, we're really looking at second response, increasing capacity through offering trainings to professionals who then can take this work further and back into their own communities. Exactly. Building capacity is, is really the, the phrase that's being thrown around a lot on the ground. And, and that's the most important thing is because we, we cannot be there for an extended period of time for years on end. Um, and so the most important thing, but the, the other reason for that is to build a sense of empowerment within that community. Um, so instead of us just going in and providing these services, really allowing the community community to rebuild themselves. This is really a grassroots uh, effort, I think. And Michelle, Dr. Michelle Wang, I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank you for going to the Philippines with Jonah Spear and Dr. Ronnie Berger on behalf of on behalf of Second Response and and doing these this amazing work. And I want to thank you for sharing your stories today on Health Currents Radio. Of course, Ellen. It was our it was our pleasure. I, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of the entire team that it was um, it was transformative to say the least, and it was also very fulfilling for each and every one of us on a personal level. So, um, thank you so much in your interest, and um, we we're just we're happy to do this work. Yes, and I want to let our listeners know if you want to learn more about Second Response and their initiatives, you can go to their website at secondresponse.com. And you can go to their contact page, or you can contact them through Fortunate Blessings Foundation, which supports Second Response and created Second Response, at info at fortunateblessings.org. Or you can call them at 860-567-8801. And if you're interested in training to learn about play shops, uh, learning to offer them, you can also go to their website and go to their contact page. And finally, just on behalf of Second Response and Fortunate Blessings Foundation, all donations are welcome to support this ongoing work. It takes a lot of money to send people halfway around the world and train people and, and, and make this work available to our colleagues and our brothers and sisters all around the world to minimize the effect of trauma on children. Thank you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, Ellen. This work is so close to my heart. I've worked with William Spear for over 20 years, and to see the evolution of what the work that he has done into Second Response and to see its impact on children is so powerful and so important. To think that if we support children and adults in releasing trauma that, that builds inside like a pressure cooker, that we might be able to help people in recovering their capacity and ability to live life more fully. Why, that is an extraordinary gift and one that I think is so worthy and so important to do. And it was so moving to hear Michelle Wang talk about the work that she did in the Philippines. I understood it could have gone on for a long time because the experiences there were so rich. I hope that this interview was insightful for you and sparked your curiosity about how we can help people with trauma. And I encourage you to go to the Second Response website and learn more about what they're doing and see how you can get involved and how you can start to build capacity for dealing with difficult situations for traumatic events, hopefully that never have to touch your heart. So that's all for our show today. And I'm Ellen Goldsmith. And I want to thank you. And I want to thank our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic in downtown Portland, Oregon. And you can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. And you can always listen to Health Currents Radio and find our past shows at healthcurrentsradio.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, 
you can go to the mobile app Stitcher, finding Health Currents Radio on Facebook at facebook.com healthcurrentsradio. And we want to know how you're transforming your life through your health. <laughs>